and welcome to the NUS Educator Podcast Series. This is the first of the series. My name is Robin Loon. I'm an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. And in conversation with me today in this podcast is Dr. Kamalini Ramdas, who I affectionately call Kamal. Hello, Kamal. Hi, Robin. Thanks for having me here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So we're just going to start from the beginning. How it all started from you and your journey thus far. So take us back to how and when did you start this journey to be an educator? Um, I think when I started out that being an educator was not what I had planned all along. Mm. I kind of like ended up doing it because of the choices that I made through my life, right? And I sort of being able to figure out what it is I enjoy doing and and being able to kind of understand myself better. So mm. I would say that I became an educator, maybe using that term mm. for myself, maybe um, about 10 or 15 years ago, maybe wow, only. Okay. Uh, um, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a lot older than my my peers if mm. you think of you know where I am in terms of the the career my, track my career track mm. right uh, so in a way I was a mature student mm. I, I did my PhD later in life mm. I went out to work uh, so my first job actually was not in education it was oh. in consulting okay. um, I did work for a US based firm that opened an office in Singapore mm. and I actually did work on telecommunications and um, IT markets right Ooh. so uh, Ooh, wow. which is yeah quite a technical field to be in um, uh, and for an arts and social science student quite uh, far away from what I might have studied mm. at the university. Um, but as a geography graduate, mm. what I was prepared to do mm. is to talk about the world and how places are connected to each other, right? right? And so that was important for my employers mm. because they were just opening in Singapore and wanting to get a good sense of what Asia was like at that time. I see. Uh, this was in the um, mid-1990s when right. the telecommunications market was sort of liberalizing in, in Singapore. That's so. Right. And in Asia. So mm. um, so I think it was a really interesting time mm. and I learned a lot. Um, but I also realized that maybe being in consulting and and working for, you know, companies in, in the private sector, that ne wasn't necessarily what I was sort of interested in, right? right. I could do my job well yes. and I was moving up the ranks, right? And it became, you know, it came to a point where I thought, okay, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Mm. You know, uh, and then I thought, okay, maybe it's time to go back to school. Right. Uh, so I came back and did my master's at the Department of Geography mm. um, and later on my PhD, right? Mm. And in all this time, I guess I dabbled in academia, mm. right? In the mm. sense that I worked at the Asia Research Institute. Right. I taught as a teaching assistant. That mm. was where my first sort of job Job in education uh, took place. That was wow. in uh, 2003. Wow. Um, and so I would say that I became an educator, right? Maybe from 2005 onwards, I started thinking of myself that way uh, more systematically, right. right? And in part, it had to do a lot with um, how much I enjoyed being in the classroom mm. um, with students mm. and being able to communicate with them, mm. you know, some really interesting ideas about the discipline of geography, mm. right? So I was hired to teach one of those large modules, general right. education modules, which still exists today. It's called Changing Landscapes of right. Singapore. Um, and uh, in a way, I was teaching students who weren't geographers, right? So most of our general education students are students who aren't majoring in the discipline, but right. maybe are interested to learn a little bit more. Mm. So always it's been about communicating ideas about geography, mm. 
um, to geographers, mm. but also to non-geographers, mm. right? So I think I would say that I thought of myself as a university educator or became more interested in education, um, maybe from the mid-2000s onwards. Okay. Right. So... I can tell you like being in the classroom, you like interacting with students, then why educator at the university level and not at any mm. other level? Yeah. What do you think you are bringing mm -hmm. to the university classroom? So I think um, in a way, the university classroom is a unique space. Mm. Um, I think if you think through in the Singaporean context, at least with education, mm. um, at primary school and secondary school and junior college, most students don't necessarily get to choose what subjects they want to do, right? So they might, in the sense that you could choose to do geography, right? right? But in terms of what that curriculum might comprise, right. that's not necessarily something you can decide because that's it's true. pretty much fixed because of the O-level geography curriculum or the A-level right. geography mm. curriculum. But in the university, uh, what our students can do is they can look at a whole sort of slate of modules offered by researchers, mm. Um, in, in sort of very um, specific areas in geography, right? From climate change to mangroves to heritage geography right. uh, to cultural geography, right? Uh, urban studies, all those kinds of topics, but going to quite minute detail. And I think what is really interesting is that students get to pick right. what they want to study, mm. right? And so for me, that is really a very creative time mm. because actually that's the point where students really start to understand the breadth and sort of reach of geography as a subject, mm. right? Um, and they're not, in a way, they're not forced to study things. That's they are right. choosing they for themselves, yeah. right? So they're, So I would like to imagine that they, by choosing, they're also sort of saying that they want to be in that they classroom, want to be there, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think all things considered, I think what university education does differently is that I, I, I mean, at some level, I'm assuming that students are there because they want to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, they have made a choice. Mm -hmm. And even though sometimes they may not get the exact subject that they choose, at some level to decide to do geography at the university must mean a certain level of commitment. And so then what we're having is two people, uh, the educator and students in the classroom who are both interested in the, in the discipline, mm. right? And so we're not necessarily... Um, telling them we're equals in a way having a discussion about the discipline right. the, the stuff we like about it what we don't like about it mm. the theories the concepts you know um and in a way it's a more to me at least a more egalitarian classroom space so for me what makes university education different right from everything that happens before is that the power structure in the university education in my mind or at least in my classroom, in your classroom. needs to be a it, it is a little bit more flat it's mm. more egalitarian right mm. so that doesn't mean that people can just choose to not study or mm. decide they're not going to do their homework but <laughs> um you know but at some level right that that they we can have a conversation right. about what we agree or disagree right. on right and and my job as an educator is to help them to make those arguments mm. and to give them the skills or tools by which they might be able to make an argument mm. that is different from what i might believe right mm. so i think uh i think university education actually is mm. quite a broad uh, space, right, mm. and that allows our students to kind of, in a way, um, get creative mm. and explore, right, right, what they know about a discipline. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about uh, your education and teaching values later, mm. but I want to focus on this bit that you just brought up, the flat structure mm -hmm. in your classroom mm -hmm. and the students coming from such a hierarchized and mm. 
do they struggle in your classroom? Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how how do you help them? How do you help them I, manage this flat structure when yeah. they're so used to saying to the teacher, just tell us what you want to do? And Yeah. Mm. So I think... Um, you know, it's interesting, right? Mm. I think at the when I teach a first year class, I have to do a lot more of that um, preparation work right. because that's when they would just have come out of mm. junior college, and so it's kind of like deer in headlights moment, mm. right? So people are a little bit more freaked out, but it gets easier, right? right? So for students who maybe have taken classes with me, right? right. So I teach at all levels, right? more or less know that that's mm. what they're meant to do. Mm. But I think the first year classes, these this can be quite challenging, mm. right? And I think one way to in which you can sort of create that that opening, right, is to really, um, I think, give students time, right. right? So, in other words, if you're if you're having a tutorial discussion, you actually need to have fewer things to discuss uh-huh. rather than more things to rather discuss. Rather than pack it through. Yeah, right? So if you have fewer things, that means you you make space for the silence of the, mm, uh, oh gosh, who's going to speak next? You know, that that horrible moment for most educators where mm. nobody's talking? <laughs> it's like a game of chicken, right? So I've had to learn to, um, you know, l- l- sit Deal through the, the, the game of chicken right. for like, more than 10 seconds, That's more right. than 15 seconds, right? Initially, when I started, five seconds seemed like an eternity and right. I felt compelled to like, maybe I need to say something, mm. right? But actually, sometimes you just need to take a step back mm. and... um wait mm. right so that's one mm. the other is to create opportunities for discussion like most of us do with small room discussions or mm. especially with zoom right mm. breakout rooms where mm. they have a bit more privacy in some sense right so that's one of the things i like about zoom right mm. that i'm not necessarily there breathing down their necks and they can kind of have a discussion and right. then i kind of like pop in and pop out or we can use the chat mm. function to to get some of that going right so for me i think um one is structuring the kinds of interactions. That means through group interactions or shorter questions mm. and making things easier. So we aim for low-hanging fruit right. uh, so that people feel confident. Mm. So that by the time they get to your 4,000-level class mm. or your 5,000-level class, they are a little bit more confident, right? right. I have other tactics too. Uh, <laughs> Don't give away them, your trade secrets. No, no, but one of them is really cool, you know? I have this like hourglass that I got oh. from a stationary shop, right? And it's like three minutes, right? I see. And I tell them, I put I put the hourglass in the class and I say, okay, I'm going to give you three minutes to think about this. Right. And when time runs out, we'll have a little chat, right? And I tell you, three minutes is a long time. It is, it is. You know, people don't think three minutes is a long time, but when they see it, right, and they realize that everyone's just sitting silently and kind of like just in their own thoughts, right? And then when three minutes is up, I say, okay, three minutes is up. Let's 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 hear what you have to say, mm. right? And I don't know, there's something about the silence that calms people down as opposed to like the Gestapo style, like what do you think? And then like split, you know, kind of fling the the microwave at uh, microwave the microphone at people. <laughs> Hopefully, we're not flinging the microwave at no, people. No, 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 no. We uh, don't do that. So the microphone at people, and uh, you know, and then they're kind of like, oh my god, am I supposed to speak right now? You know. So I think. Um, so this is again, right? That tactic, what I said about making time, yes. right? So, so this this hourglass that I bought was best investment ever, right? Mm. I think I I paid like less than ten bucks for it, right? Mm. So, but it 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 really does help, and mm. it reminds me also mm. to slow down, right? Because yep. three minutes is a lot of time. That's right. You can do a lot in three minutes. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I had um, the privilege of observing Kamal in a four thousand level class, and. 
it was so active. Everybody was participating, you know. And then there was one particular moment where there was silence. And you can tell Dr. K, they call you Dr. K, looking, hey guys, what's this? (laughs) (laughs) What is this? Then everybody got, oh, okay, okay, we'll talk. (laughs) So they kind of like, they kind of feel safe. Mm -hmm. They kind of feel like, okay, it's time to talk. And when there is silence, they kind of know that it's okay. And then when the silence is too long, Dr. K will say, okay, guys, what's happening? Why aren't you talking? And then they will talk. And I think that's to your credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a lot of um, safety mm-hmm. in that environment. So I I think that's a, a pretty astonishing thing that you help cultivate from the first. And I've actually seen it at the 4,000 yeah. level. And I think the safety thing is also important in terms of academics, right? Mm. Because if we, if we are preparing curriculum that sort of gets students ready to be in a 4,000 level class eventually, Mm -hmm. right? So at geography, in a way, the the curriculum is designed so that people have those basic learning tools Mm -hmm. or building blocks. So And and that will be the same for pretty much all Mm -hmm. other disciplines, right? We have Mm -hmm. a gateway module which helps students understand what the discipline is about, Mm -hmm. even if they're not from that discipline, Mm -hmm. right? And then we probably in the social sciences have a methods module where you teach people how to do the research. So all of that is is, is actually getting students ready, right? Mm -hmm. To have that kind of higher level discussion, Mm -hmm. right? And so in a way, by the time they get to the 4,000 level, they should be able to do that, right? And they have been given the tools. But having said that, at the 4,000 level also, the content can be more daunting, right? The readings are harder, they can be more theoretical. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, what then needs to happen is the assurance, you know, that you don't have to be perfect. Yep. Right. So early on, I said, fling the microwave at people. Right. So, you know, <laughs> if I were perfect, I would not have made that mistake. Right. And so I think at some level, my students know that I don't really sweat that kind of stuff. Right? right. So I think it's OK to make mistakes. Right. right? Um, because if we were perfect and we didn't make any mistakes, I wouldn't be have written my PhD at 39, right? Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have made any detours. I wouldn't have done anything. That's I would have right. just like gone from A to B in a, in a heartbeat, right? Um, and, and that's not me. So mm. because that wasn't my experience, I don't expect my students to be perfect either, mm. right? So uh, they need to be confident and able to, to make mistakes and still know that really it's okay. There are other ways in which you can gain some ground. Mm. So the way in which I structure my assessments also, we have one of the things we do is like we have, um, you know, I, I tell them it's like, it's like going on a date. You don't really know me yet. <laughs> so we have a 5% like speed dating round where I give you something to do and then I'll give you a grade. It's only worth 5%. So, but you'll get to know what the market rate is, right? right. Where you stand, right? And then we do the real thing, right? Right. Mm. Um, so, of course, it's extra work. But when I grade it, I'm not giving them a lot of detail. I'll just say it's A, B or C. Right. And then at the end, I give them like, a OK, what does the A mean? What does the B mean? What mm. does the C mean? Because right. no two people are the same yeah, in terms of true. how they value mm. those things. Mm. Right. So I think there are certain um, practices and tactics that we can put in place that give students confidence, the confidence and trust that they need to take that risk and be willing to have an argument with you about social theory, Mm. about feminist theory, Mm. right? Because that's not easy to do, right? So we have to find ways to engage them, Mm. right? So this is, is quite important, yeah.
This is the NUS Educator Podcast. We are in conversation with Dr. Carmelini Ramdas from the Department of Geography at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. So, Kamal, I've known you for a while, and I can safely say that you are one of the most passionate geographers I've met. So tell me, so what is it about geography that gets you so excited and passionate? And, and, and what is the value of an education in geography? So I think, um, you know, for me, if I think back to when I I started using the term, right, what, what I liked about it, I think I would say like, um, I decided I would major in geography as an undergraduate because mm. I thought I was going to become an urban planner because right. I thought, wow, that, that sounds like a great job, right? Because mm. you get to decide what happens in mm. cities and, you know, you get to um, plan and think about um, how spaces are allocated, right? So it sounded really exciting. Mm. Um, and then I and then I guess as I grew older, I thought um, planning is one part of the story, right? Yes. In a way, planning is preempting. It's kind of like... Um, trying to, to to sort of project into the future what needs might be. And in a way, it's quite a distanced process also, at mm. least back then when when we were talking about um, planning, right? Mm. I mean, now today, if you think about planning and urban planning, there's mm. a lot more feedback and yes. interaction between the state and policymakers and, and Singaporeans, right? But but back then, it was less likely to be the case, right? And so I, I kind of thought, okay, maybe not urban planning, right? But in, in any sense... Geography was always an, an an important part of my life, right? Mm. Even before that decision about urban planning. I think in part because I'm a Singaporean mm. from a very small island mm. who had big dreams and wanted to learn about the world, mm. right? Uh, but not necessarily a big pocket. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, if you want to learn about the world and you don't have a blank check to travel all the time, uh, and this was pre the internet That's and pre Google, right? Pre-Google. So we're talking about like the 1980s, 1990s, 90s. right? I mean, like how else were you going to find out what was going on, right? True, so true. I remember the most geography geek thing I ever did was um, when I turned 21, I asked my aunt to buy me an atlas, and wow. she was like, what? You don't want jewelry? You want an <laughs> atlas? And of course, this is before like um, Google Maps and things, right? Mm. So I still have that atlas, right? Wow. Um, um, and I think for me, the value of a geographical education is that it reminds us that we are a lot bigger than where we come from. Oh, now, I'm that's not a nice one. A lot bigger than, than where, where we, we come, come from. from. Yeah, right? So, I mean, that's not to say that where you come from isn't important. True. Right? So where you come from... It's about your history, what's important to you, who you are culturally, right? Your kind of life experiences. And like, say, if you say, I'm a Singaporean, right? What does that mean, right? Mm. At some level, that's about Singapore as a tropical island, Mm. the physicality of Singapore, its environment, Mm. right? Mm. Um, But also it's about um, Singapore as a a place where people, right, uh, uh, live, right? In in a highly dense urban environment, right? Mm. So to me, geography is a subject that brings together the physical and environmental sciences Mm. as well as the human or social science Mm. aspects of understanding places, Mm. right? Um, And so... As you study geography, you start to explore other parts of the world, Mm. right? And one of the things you had to do as a geography student, whether at A-level geography or O-level geography, is you had to have an understanding of case studies, right? So I remember, you know, as an A-level geography student, having to like read about the UK, read Mm. about India, and I'd never been there, right? Mm. But I'd I'd have some kind of understanding of its geomorphology, its coastline, its people. And so to me, that was really important. And I still believe in that 
aspect of geography mm. and its value, mm. right? That means understanding mm. people um, as a as an outcome of the places they are in, mm. right? But also more than that, mm. meaning in today's globalizing world, geography is also the study of how places are connected to other places. That's true. So it's about that kind of transnational connections between places that we are interested in as well. So if you look at the geography curriculum at NUS, we go into the tropical environmental change aspects, which is the physical geography, but we also have a human geography aspects mm. where we're talking about cultural geography and yeah. geopolitics, you know? Yeah. Um, and we try to bring all of those things together so mm. that geography graduates have that kind of understanding mm. of the subject mm. in a more macro level. Okay. And also to me, I think the value and beauty of that of the subject is that at its at its at at, at its sort of crux, right? It is an intradisciplinary subject. Oh, intradisciplinary. Intradisciplinary, right? Meaning the discipline is split into like different components that draw from, um, you know, the physical, the social sciences and the humanities, right? So this is something I I saw in a a write-up, right? That this this is a term, right? Mm. Intradisciplinary, meaning in a discipline, there are these sort of like different components and intersections Mm. that make it um, you know, it's it's not just one way of understanding mm. the subject matter, mm. right? So this, so geography in a way has that sort of that that breadth, right? Mm. Which is really important, right? Um, so so like I said, you know, it it gives it pays attention to where people come from, so place, but it's also interested in how places are connected mm. to other places, places, right? So the complexity of place, right? And and so I think for me, right, this makes it a really important subject for students to have an understanding mm. of um, before they go out into the world, mm. right? Um, so, yeah. So, okay. I, I think that that would be, for me, the value of a geographical education. So, I'm, I'm going to zoom in on nomenclatures, mm-hmm. right? So, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. You've always um, said that you are a feminist cultural mm. geographer. Mm. So, what is cultural geography to you mm-hmm. And we'll talk about feminists later, yeah. but I want to focus on the cultural geography, yeah. which is your area. Yeah. So what is that and why is that particularly important in today's world? So um, so just to clarify, I'm a social and cultural geographer. That's social the, and cultural yeah, geographer. That's the, that's the pillar. So mm-hmm. um, the other pillar in, 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 in the Department of Geography after tropical environmental change, uh, social and cultural geography and um, politics, ec- economies and space, mm. right? So um, that those are the economic and political geographers, right? right? But um, I'm, I'm in the middle one, right? Social and cultural geography. Um, what, uh, what does that mean? So I guess social and cultural geography uh, at some level is, is looking... Uh, specifically, right, at how social relations or mm. people, people, right, mm. uh, um, experience space, mm. right? So um, at, at some level, social and cultural geographers are interested at how people mm. conceptualize, mm. experience, and make meaning about spaces, right? right? Um, but they also understand or appreciate the fact that how we under how we think of ourselves mm. is also affected by where we are from mm. so this in a nomenclature the nomenclature 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 <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry sorry for bringing bringing yes. the term up yes. yes um so in in that sense right it's about um 
the socio-spatial dialectic. That's what we call it, right? right. So the, the interest in how the social and the spatial mm. inform each other, right. right? So if I ask you, who are you? You wouldn't be able to answer that question without saying where you're from. from. Correct. But where you're from, right? So where you're from influences who you are, but who you are also influences the spaces around you, correct. right? So that means what you do in those correct, spaces, correct, right? Correct. And and in some sense, geographers or any social and cultural geographers are very are also very interested in bodies, right? right. And what bodies can do mm. as acts of resistance in spaces. Mm. So for social and cultural geographers, then, um, when it comes to a discussion on scale, mm. we're focused on the body quite okay. intimately, mm. right? And this is where some of the work that I do uh, kind of like, I, I can have conversations with uh, artists or mm. performers because, mm. and sports, right? Because we're looking at bodies and embodiment in very Correct. particular ways that Correct. might even speak to what you do in your classroom, Correct. right, Robin? Mm. Um, so there's that kind of overlap. So mm. social and cultural geography in a way um, looks at that socio-spatial dialectic, number one. Number two, it focuses on the scale spectrum. It's looking more at the bodies and communities. Mm. Whereas communities. maybe mm. with um, the peace people, my peace colleagues, sometimes they start off looking more at the state, right? And policy and nations and, and maybe intergovernmental, right? So it's big P politics versus small P, P politics, politics, right? right. So social and cultural geographers tend to focus a lot more on the small P politics part of things. Um, and I think cultural geographers are also interested in text, mm. like English literature. Correct. Uh, majors as mm. well, right? So we would we would try and get our students to understand that fieldwork is important. That means going into a field site mm. to do research is important. Mm. But also how we understand field sites is about the text, text. that already exists yes. or mm. pre-exists the right. entry into the field site, mm. right? So if I ask you to go to a kopitiam and study it, your perception of it could be based on what you're seeing there, mm -hmm. but it would also be influenced by maybe sitcoms you've watched on Kopitiams, mm -hmm. postcards you've seen about Kopitiams, or your own sort of Kopitiam near your home, mm -hmm. right? So all of those things then become um, quite important. So mm -hmm. fieldwork for social geographers, social and cultural geographers includes textual analysis mm -hmm. of non-field-specific um analysis textual wow. analysis right so wow. so i think that that's quite important or at least that's my understanding mm. of my dis my subdiscipline in geography so uh, from what i hear is that a student who focuses on social and cultural geography would have to pick up quite a range of capabilities and skills from textual analysis how to work in the field and also, I think the value of all this is that it really gives you access. It doesn't give you immediate insight, mm -hmm. but it gives you access mm -hmm. so that you can gain insight into human beings and, mm -hmm. and how they behave in a space mm -hmm. and how they interact and how they work that yeah. particular space. Yeah. So I think that's really something that, you know, right now in the world that we live in, mm -hmm. is a really good thing for students to have. Absolutely. And I think that that is something that I would uh, really encourage people to explore mm -hmm. because I think having knowing all these things and be having an education mm -hmm. in it and knowing certain skills and capability mm -hmm. is quite different. Yeah. And and I think also with the current like, um, you know, CHS program, right, mm -hmm. what we're going to see is opportunities for students to sort of pick different majors, mm. right? So while we couldn't possibly cover everything about textual analysis in the way, say, uh, you might in, in, say, English language and lit if you're mm. doing discourse analysis, right? But 
in a way, some of my students might have, that might be their other major. Correct. So I have students from ELL who take geography and then they get to try out some of what they're learning mm. in this context, right? Or students from political science who are looking at a different way of understanding politics mm. and then they come into my class, mm. right? And I've had engineers who are from engineering department who are looking at space in very Cartesian terms, right? Mm. And then here I am talking about emotions and feelings and 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 affect, mm. right? And they're like, oh my God, what's going <laughs> on, right? Uh, we're not just building a building. We're not just, you know, trying to find the best way to get from mm. point A to point B, right? Because I was making this point with an engineering student. I said, sometimes you draw a map and the most... Um, you know, the most obvious way of getting from point A to point B is not the one that people choose, mm. right? For a variety of re reasons that are more about human beings mm. being complex creatures Correct. than about getting to a point A to point B in the shortest amount of time, right? So so I think once you start um, understanding space in that embodied and effective sort of way, then that is the kind of contribution that I think social mm. and cultural geography uh, brings to the mix, right? So I'm, I'm really excited about CHS and the kinds of students I might see in my classroom who maybe have a different sort of, um, you know, they're coming with a lot more to the classroom, I hope, right? Because they, they have the option of picking different subjects and, and sort of exploring, right? And so I think that will make for some interesting discussions. This is the NUS Educator Podcast Series, and I am now talking to Dr. Kamalini Ramdas from the Department of Geography. So if you have uh, tuned into a previous segment, uh, Dr. Kamal talked about the flat structure in a classroom. So have a listen to that, and it, in an interesting way, uh, Dr. K, as the students call her, navigate or help students navigate this new, since we're talking about geography, this new landscape. Mm -hmm. But now I want to focus in on just basic beliefs and values in education. Right. So tell us, tell us your values and beliefs in education. What, what do you stand for? Are there certain kinds of pedagogical principles that you are firmly aligned with, you know? Yeah. Um, so I know earlier on you 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 were asking me about uh, feminist pedagogy, right? And so that's something that I've, uh, you know, been, been reading a lot more mm. about. Now, I think in a way, right, I was doing this without necessarily having a name for it, that's right? right. Mm. Um, because, and I think at some level, many good educators actually try to put in practice True. some of the mm. principles, right, behind um, feminist pedagogy, right, that have to do not just in terms of content to teach about feminist theory mm. or about gender, but also about classroom practice, That's right. right? And That's the right. type of classroom we have mm. in, 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 in the feminist sort of classroom, right? Um, and I, I think for me, there are two ways to think about the practice. One is what happens in the classroom, mm. and the other is how the inside of the classroom is connected to the outside, outside. of the classroom, okay. right? Um, so in the classroom, I think what we want to do is we want to create opportunities where people or students and educators are able to communicate respectfully mm. and freely with mm. each other. Mm. Because at its crux, um, feminist pedagogy, right, is 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 
wary, right, of hegemonic forms of knowledge construction, right? right? So if we think of education and knowledge as something that can't just be about the books written by important people, mm -hmm. right, um, then we, we might have to look for alternative knowledges, right? right. So what are these alternative knowledges? knowledges? They could be indigenous knowledges. They could be knowledges from communities that don't necessarily have a a history or tradition of publishing in mm. the written word, mm. right? And certainly not an academic text, mm. right? But that doesn't mean that they're not of value. It doesn't mean that our students' experiences are irrelevant right. in the classroom, right? right? So good educators and in a way, feminist educators or mm. feminist, Pedag those who practice, practice feminist, feminist pedagogy, pedagogy mm. want to create opportunities for this type of learning, mm. right? But to do that, again, there must be a space where students feel that they can contribute, that mm. they feel safe to, to share mm. a little bit about their personal lives mm. or their personal experiences, mm. right? So the personal then becomes the important starting point for having a conversation about bigger structures mm. and bigger topics or mm. theories, right? Mm. So we start from the personal. Mm. And in a way, for some disciplines, this might not be the way it's done, True. right? Um, but for me, at least in my classroom, I find that it is easier when people are able to think about where they fit in something mm. and why it is so important to them, mm. right? And their communities. And then they start from there and they kind of like uh, extrapolate upwards, right? right. So, okay. so so, I guess for me, the, 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 the belief then is that the personal is important, mm. community knowledges are important, mm. and we want to create a, a, a space in the classroom mm. where students can contribute mm. and share. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all session, mm. right? Mm. Because at its, at its heart, right, the feminists are also anti-patriarchal, mm. they're um, their anti-racism, right? Mm. So uh, we, we are concerned about respecting mm. difference and making space for, uh, you know, a, a, and or rather having a, a, a strong awareness of power and power mm. structures in the classroom. Mm. So by that, I mean the power relationship between educators mm. and students. Yes. So it's not like you have an all-seeing educator who knows everything Correct. and assume that students don't know any better for themselves. And I think this is really important, particularly as we move into an education environment where we're having more continuing education. Mm. We have more students who take a break, mm. who come into the classroom after taking a couple of years mm. off. We have students who own their own businesses and mm. come into a classroom. I'm not comfortable assuming I know everything about geography mm. or its relevance in the lives of people. Mm. I may have my own beliefs mm. about it, mm. right? But I want to create a space where someone might be able to say, actually, they don't agree, right? Mm. Or they have another view. But let's have a discussion based on certain principles about, you know, structures, like theoretical approaches. Like mm. if we're talking about this from a feminist theoretical perspective, mm. what, what would the would arguments be? be right? So an academic um, education, right, or a university education actually puts in place certain um, structures mm. that allow us to engage respectfully with mm. each other and also give us space to agree or disagree, mm. right? So I think this is actually quite important, mm. right? And I believe that a flatter structure, right, mm. will allow for these kinds of discussions to happen in a more, um, I guess, in a, in a more respectful um, way. Because, you know, if we see someone as not your enemy, right, but really just someone who's next to you and you want to have a conversation with them, you don't start off like putting on your, I don't know, your war vestibule. Mm. You don't wear your, your, armor. your armor and you're going to like start mm. fighting with them, right? We want to create that opportunity where it's mm. not that, right? Mm. We start with questions. We listen deeply. Mm. We make space for uncertainty, mm. right? We make space for emotions mm. and silence and mm. people crying sometimes mm. in the classroom because mm. they've had 
like you know something that 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 really is quite important to them. So I've had instances where that happens, right? And you need to be able to deal with that. So mm. I I, I want to say that for me, the classroom isn't a space where I know everything. Mm. Um, I want to try and create a space where students can disagree, mm. but we disagree based on certain principles or academic sort of structures or frameworks mm. that we have already decided for this class in mm. the learning outcomes. Mm. Right? So some of the principles would be different in a second year geography class versus mm. say a fourth year feminist geography class, right? Um, so so these kinds of um, uh, uh, structures, right, need to be put in place by the educator. Mm. But once students enter the classroom, aware of what the learning outcomes mm. are and aware of what the content is, mm. then it should be actually a situation where people can have an academic argument that disagrees with some of the principles behind the 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 sort of theoretical argument, right? But but that is um, that's where we can we can have that discussion, right? Mm. But we want to create a a flat sort of structure where we can do that effectively. Okay, well, it it seems to me that the the advantage, and I speak from somebody who was in a teaching and learning community uh, headed, led by uh, Kamal, on exploring feminist pedagogy in the classroom. I think talking about the personal, and then a lot, there's a lot of flack about, oh, this is academic, we have to be objective, why are you talking about the personal? Mm -hmm. But the personal is, like you said, about relevance, and the relevance would also then get the students to buy into, yeah, this is important because it's meaningful. It means something to me. It has impact and direct relationship to uh, my life. And I think from then, then the student gets a little bit more committed that it isn't just something external. But I want to continue on in talking to you about the classroom when you have these hot button moments where different perspectives start emerging. You know, um, a uh, colleague of ours and a, a friend of ours, uh, Dr. Shobha Avdani, used this word, asymmetries, mm -hmm. right? And this is where the feminist classroom would expose these mm -hmm. asymmetries. Mm -hmm. So you as an educator, wanting to promote healthy, active, respectful argument, when you see these asymmetries and students struggling with these asymmetries, when do you intervene? Do you even intervene? And then how do you intervene? I think, um, so first of all, I have to say that it's never perfect, mm. right? And I think that um, for most educators, I think as you, as you become more experienced, you get better at managing or facilitating discussions on hot, hot topics, mm. right? Um, and I think um, for me, right, uh, when that happens, again, I go back to the issue of time that I mentioned earlier, this right. game thing about waiting. Mm. Um, I cannot respond immediately sometimes, right? right. So usually I have um, certain sort of tactics, again. Uh, one of them is to like, if someone says something and it's obviously a triggering issue, right? Mm. So sometimes it could be somebody saying something that triggers somebody else and then there's like, you know, uh, uproar in the class, right? Oh mm. uh, no, you know, especially if you're the one person that feels that way about something and everybody mm. else kind of like trying to silence you, right? So I found what makes it useful is to always come back to the literature. Mm. So we never have these discussions without it being anchored in a reading, mm. right? Because actually my job is not like we're having some kind of coffee shop talk. Uh. Correct. We are having a classroom discussion on yes. a topic, right? That is anchored in a feminist piece of writing, right? And that might be like an 
uh, alternative writing that might come from the other side, maybe. Right. And we're having a discussion about that. So it's not necessarily about... Pers- it could be about personal opinion, but it has to be anchored in the discussion that is about the reading, mm. right? So in a way, um, having the reading and the literature is important to me, right? Um, and giving my students sort of the understanding that there's a range of responses here. Mm. And actually, each one of them can be anchored or located in a particular social uh, social theory sort of um, scope, Correct. right? So at the level 4,000, right, what we try to do is like talk about the theory, right? Mm. But also anchor it in readings, mm. right? So that it's not just about opinions. Correct. Right? Mm. Um, it is an academic discussion it at is, some level. Is. So I think that's important for me, right? The other thing, like I said, is about making time. So when someone says that, sometimes you have to make, you have to put aside time to sit with that for a minute, mm. right? So I've had some instances where I feel like, oh my God, I can't believe someone said something like that, mm. right? It's so like anti-racist, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a racist statement rather. Mm. And and I'm like, how do I, how do I like, you know, do I say something? Do mm. I not say something, you yeah. know? Um, and I've had to intervene, right? Mm, yes. Um, and, but I've had to, it's not an immediate intervention. So I give myself like a bit of time, Right. And then I kind of wait to see how the discussion is going. Mm. And then I wait to see if peers actually correct peers. Right. Okay. So sometimes I don't have to do my job. The students will actually like call each other out and say, yeah, like, hey, yeah. that's not okay. You right. know, so I don't have to be the one to say it. So when that happens, that's great. But sometimes even after that, right, some people, students might be still like, uh, you know, they might need a little bit of framing. Right. Mm. So in that case, then I might have to go up and and say something. Right. So again, I would think about, OK, is this about one person, one person's view? Or mm. is this about actually there seems to be a, a trend in the classroom about not understanding something that I'm trying to get across to them. Mm. So if it is something that speaks to a broader lack of understanding, right, and not just one person's view, mm. I would then use that as an as a moment mm. to bring it up to the whole classroom, up, right? Yeah. But if it's just one person's personal politics and view, I might want to speak with them privately. Mm. I might want to take them out and have a chat with them and mm. say, hey, you know, you know, it might it might be during the break or something, mm. right? Um, and just say, like, let's have a chat about this, right? And why you feel this way and what are some of the things we're reading in, in this classroom that are actually kind of like antithetical to these beliefs and mm. my beliefs, right? Being able to engage with students and reading a room, mm. it's quite important, mm. right? And most... I think that most um, good educators, right, will be able to do that. But it comes with experience. So I wouldn't have done these hot button topics maybe in my first two years as an educator. No way, right? I wasn't that brave, right? It's only like now after like, you know, more than 10 years of experience that I'm I'm, I'm able to do some of that, mm. right? And I and I prepare ahead yes, of time, of right? So we all know that when we're having that topic that's really personal to us and mm. maybe it's the one that is triggering for us, mm. we prepare before we go to the classroom. Mm. We imagine what are the possible pitfalls and mm. sort of like, you know, wild curveballs that might appear in the class and mm. we get ready for them, right? right? So I would say that um, for me, one of the values and, and beliefs that I have also in dealing with this kind of, uh, these topics is preparation ahead of time, mm. right? And 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 having a very clear sort of um, structure, right? Or framework for what my classroom plan is going to look mm. like when I go in and have this, this discussion, mm. yeah. So the connection mm-hmm. you mentioned just now for uh, the classroom, what is inside the classroom and its connection to outside mm-hmm. the classroom, why is that important to you? Um, I think... 
so this is again uh, one of the sort of commitments of feminist pedagogy, mm. right? The sense that we want um, education or knowledge, right? To first of all, not just be about um, material that's published and and written by important people, but that can come from communities who uh, who whose lives are outside our classroom. So so in a way, we want to engage with communities, especially marginal communities, to kind of like hear you know what their experiences are on the ground and and we want to also use that education right to engage with them right mm. so meaning you know some of my students right later on they they find ways to sort of they want to work with third sector um parties third sector meaning non-governmental groups cool. or they want to do their honors thesis on um, non-governmental groups, you know, and this could range from a, a range of things, from women's groups to, you know, uh, students who are looking at the LGBTQ community, right, mm. um, and and even the arts, right. Mm. So, um, and the arts in relation to the environment, mm. right. So, so these are some instances where my students have then taken some of the ethos, right, of the feminist classroom and tried to. Um, contribute back to community by either engaging actively with uh, non-governmental groups or uh, maybe doing voluntary work or even in some instances working for third sector um, communities, right? So I think in a way this is is important, right? Because, you know, even if our students don't use the term feminist pedagogy, I'm noticing with the newer generation of students, I don't know which generation it is now I've given, I've lost count between... Gen Z now, uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, they come into the classroom and when I look at, when I see what, they, what they're interested in, they really want to make a difference. Mm. So they, they're willing, some of my students are willing to take lower salaries so that they can do work that is meaningful to them. Some mm. of them are willing to spend a lot of time on um, volunteer work, you know, and most of them would be doing some kind of volunteer work, mm. either helping um, kids who come from low-income families or, you know, who think education is important because it, it helps people to get break free of poverty cycles, you know. So my students, or at least the ones who come to my classroom, mm. really do want to do that. Mm. And, and what I do for them is I'm, in a way, model for them mm. how it could be done, yeah. right? Because I'm quite involved in uh, civil society. I mean, like in, in in the LGBTQ community in Singapore, and I do, uh, you know, I've been volunteering with different groups, mm. like even before I became a, a university lecturer, right? Mm. So I've always done that, right? And so I found ways to make that my 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 training yes. and my education, mm. right, to give that back to. Um, the groups that I, I mm. volunteer for. So, mm. and, and we talk about this in the classroom, mm. right? Because there is scope for talking about some of this, yes. right? And I think this gives them a way to see mm. what their education could be used for. Mm. It's not just about a job, mm. right? Of course, we need jobs and of we course, need to be able to course. put food on the table. table. But what I'm seeing more and more is that young people want to be able to do more than just earn an income, mm. right? And we could see it's about Singapore being a more developed country and that our students are actually quite privileged in the sense that they don't necessarily have to worry about the bread and butter issue so much, mm. right? That they're, we're in a, a place where people are actually thinking about what they can do for our ASEAN neighbours. Mm. What can they do for people who come to Singapore mm. who are migrant workers who need more help, mm. right? So my students are actively interested in those things, mm. right? And I can see that even in other disciplines, right? So a lot of students from other, not geography also, are also concerned about these issues, right? Mm. So I think this notion about the classroom and impact beyond the classroom will become more and more important for our students, mm. right? And even in the CHS program, we can see that there's a lot of focus 
on doing work with um, external um, you know, communities and organizations. And Previous segment, we talked about how, you know, the, and there was a, it's almost like in the university education, you said in a previous segment that uh, there's a contract. I want to be here. You want to be here. Mm -hmm. You chose to be here. So the students who choose to be in your classroom or to follow you through the class are probably very interested mm -hmm. in the way that you teach, mm. in the ethos and the values uh, about how that flat structure encourages engagement at respectful engagement yeah. at every level. And I think that's something that they could translate mm -hmm. into the work that they want to do or the difference that they yeah. want to make outside. And I think that is important because, frankly, I think one of the reasons why I joined mm -hmm. that um, teaching learning community, um, which you led with um, our friend Shoba, uh, is that I want to find out about this term feminist pedagogy mm -hmm. and it seems to be getting a lot of flag. It seems to be getting quite ruinously misunderstood <laughs> that it is about promoting feminism, but actually it's not. I think you've explained it very well. It is about a certain way we conduct the class, certain ethos, certain values, and certain modes of learning. That is why it is a feminist pedagogy, mm -hmm. and it isn't just feminism. So I think that's really important to, to think about. And that, I think, Especially now, if you think about the things you talked about, the flat, stru uh, flat structure, and then yeah. we come back to geography again, yeah. right? It's about but, engaging the world and spaces. But I do want to say we shouldn't be afraid of the feminist word, right? No, so we shouldn't. We shouldn't. And in fact, I want to say, uh, because early on you said that it doesn't promote feminism. But I, I want to... No, it doesn't just promote yeah, feminism. Yeah, so I, I think that's important. Yeah. Right? It doesn't just, just. promote but it does promote feminism and it does do a lot more than that. Correct. Right? And I think that's important because if we think about education and what it was doing before, right, especially formal education structures about schools and universities, for a long time, this was about people with privilege being able to afford education. Mm. It wasn't until education became like public good. That means like where, you, where government sort of say like, okay, everyone should be able to go to school. Everyone should have access to school. But even that experience when you have universal education, it is not the same for boys and girls. Mm. It is not f the same for people who have money versus people who don't have money, mm. right? So if we True. think of um, critical pedagogies and, and feminist pedagogies that comes under that umbrella, right? Yeah. Um, then those are pedagogical approaches or values that pay attention to inequalities in terms of access to education That's right, and the kind of experiences people from minority groups will have in classrooms, mm. right? Because they are from a minority group, mm. because they don't have money to buy the most important, the most like the the, the, the key text or the computer or the mobile phone, mm. all those things, right? Uh, and so I think for me, that then, if, for me as a feminist educator, as fe someone who practices feminist pedagogy, I'll be thinking about, okay, not all my students are going to have a laptop. Mm. So in my class, I hand out notebooks. Mm. like, And I don't mean notebook as in laptop notebook. <laughs> I mean like a paper, paper and pen. Yes. And you should see the look of horror on my students' faces, right? Because I give them a pen and I get them, I give them a notebook, right? I actually go in like, you know, you know, we can buy for the, the, the what do you call it, staff support research team, yes. right? Every two years. So I get the budget and then I buy the notebooks and I keep them and then I, I give them out and I say, you're going to, we're going to write in here, right? And we're going to use this and this is how we're going to do this, mm. right? And they're shocked, right? Because I 
I say like, actually, everyone should be able to use this. There's no like, there's no barrier to entry here, right? Mm. And and actually, um, so, you know, so that, that kind of ethos is important to me, right? So as much as I respect the universities focus on technology and blended learning and, and all of that, right? I think it's great, right? That's why we can have this podcast. That's right, that's right. Here. Don't knock the technology. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's got its use. But, but we should still not forget the humble notebook, right? Because when we have to write with pen to paper, mm. we learn to be more economical because it is painful to write when you're holding a pen and a piece of paper and you cannot copy paste. Correct. And you cannot like erase and then like do something fancy with your words, right? You literally have to write and cancel. Mm. And I tell them, the act of doing this will make you stop and think before you write. Mm. So I think this to me is important, right? Mm. Again, tactics, right? But what, what I want my students to do in class, why do I insist on the notebook, right? But you have to explain this to them, right? Mm. These beliefs and values in education about, like I said, the flat structure, right? A, an understanding of inequality and why it's important to, to use the F word, feminism, mm. right? And feminist pedagogy because mm. it does more than, it does more than argue for... Um, gender equality. Gender equality, yeah. Mm. Welcome back to the NUS Educator Podcast. We are today in conversation with Dr. Kamalini Ramdas from the Department of Geography. Now, in this segment, I want to talk about the educational innovation and the changes inside and outside of the discipline of geography that you teach. So the in the previous segment, I really like the fact that you distribute notebooks and pen to the students and tell them that in the act of writing in a notebook, it is actually an act of clarifying your thinking and thinking more carefully before you literally commit pen to paper. So other than that, which I think has its um, very, it has its, its unique way of teaching the students how to use their thoughts or communicate their thoughts. What are the other educational innovation that you want to share with the things that you're fairly proud of that mm. you did that changed maybe the way that social cultural geography is taught and or maybe I know you do a lot of work outside mm -hmm. with the ministry, with the, the schools. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think um, I mean the notebook story is just a, one like a simple, a, a simple sort of um, strategy, mm. right? A simple sort of way that I kind of have innovated, right? In a very basic way. Um, I think some of the other things I think that I that that stand out for me would be my involvement with Center for the Arts mm. at NUS. So I'm the their um, academic. Um, advisor for the arts festival mm. and i've done that now for like three years um and what that's allowed me to do is number one it's allowed me to engage with student performing groups mm. uh and their mentors or teachers who might be da dancers or theater practitioners um and uh and in in in, in some ways i think uh, my engagement has been has been more with dance mm. um uh, and that's been really uh, meaningful, right? Because what what that allows me to do is is it allows me to um, sort of 
show to the students right how geography and ideas around the body and embodiment Embodied. can be applied in outside of geography. Mm. So we said like impact beyond the classroom, right? right? So some of the things I've done is included um the late Mrs. Baskar in a yeah, in a in a in a geography classroom, mm. right? At the end of the lecture on dance. Uh, so we have a geography of the body where I bring in dance as one of the examples and performance. Uh, and we talk about the the space of the stage and the body and embodiment. Um, and she comes in later and, mm. and she did a demo in, in class about how the body can be used to uh, translate different ideas, mm. right? To bring the natural world onto the stage mm. through the use of gestures mm. and how space is sort of created. Like the, mm. the stage is not just a blank space. That mm. actually when the dancer's body move in there, they're able to add dimension to yes. it through the movement, right? So it's very hard to just read something like that because huh? mm. your brain would have to be quite visual. No? And if you have never seen a, a dance performance or you're not a dancer yourself, it can be quite challenging. And you'll be surprised how many students in an arts and social sciences classroom have never paid for ticketed dance performance. <laughs> okay, I'm always shocked, you know, because I ask them, say, okay, so how many of you all watch arts performances? And like in a class of 50, it'll be 10%, yeah. right? And I would think that in the arts and social sciences, 50% of the students should be going, but apparently not. not. So I'm always surprised, right? And so then I decided I cannot assume they know what I'm talking about mm. because if they don't have technical knowledge, they will not be able to even imagine what I'm talking about, mm. right? And so, of course, I could show them videos, right? But nothing beats having a practitioner come in and talk about it. That's and right. And I think it is useful because, number one, it also gives the dancers a kind of like understanding of how their work is being used outside of dance, Correct. right? So, I think it was great for Mrs. Baskar also to be able to contribute to a geography classroom. Mm. Um, it was great for the students. They had a lot of mm. questions for her, right? I've also had um, uh, Ang Gaimin come in to mm. talk about her performance practice mm. and what she's done uh, through her PhD in practice mm. research that she's 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 mm. doing work. Um, and so the students again, they were invited to watch the the Zoom uh, recording of her performance, mm. which uh, which was part of the arts festival. Yes. So they could ask questions as part of the audience. Mm. But then later on, she came and gave a special class with my students, mm. and we did again a Q and A, right? Where mm. it was more geography specific questions that mm. students could ask, right? So again, I think for me, this this sort of, um, this work that I'm doing with uh, Centre for the Arts, right, has been really important uh, for the introduction to social and cultural geography uh, 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 syllabus that, that I've sort of developed, right? So this module now has a, a, a designated lecture on uh, embodiment that mm. is a very centred on dance, mm. uh, which has been quite important. I wouldn't have been able to do this without that, uh, collaboration, right, with Center for the Arts, right? Mm. So I think uh, that that is one of the innovations I would like to talk about. I think the other innovation I want to talk about is my my collaboration with MOE, right? Yeah. So geography um, lecturers, right? In you know for a long time now we've been collaborating with MOE because um, geography is one of the A level subjects, yes. O level subjects. So you know, in the university, we're always always invited to sit on curriculum Com review committees. committees, and you've done this too, yes, Robin, I have, right? So so. But what I want to say in in a way, um, I'd like to say is 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 my maybe uh, in a small way a contribution that I have made is to um, sort of open up the discussion around gender and geography, mm. right? So in a way, the the issues around gender and geography have to do with women and development, yes. right? And and so of course these are quite uh, important issues if we think about Asia and and issues around access to water, sanitation, education, and and how cities are planned uh, without the concerns of say um you know uh, the safety and protection of women, women. for example. Mm. So these are some like very 
you know, um, fairly uh, straightforward sort of arguments, right? And that that is important that geographers can actually, in the context of urban geography or in the context of development geography, they, there can be productive discussions around this. So one of the things that I've done is to to open up this, this possibility. Mm. And I think in the coming A-level geography uh, curriculum revamp, right? That means the new the new syllabus that's coming out in 2023, then women and geography will be one of the sort of topics that mm. they will look at under livability or and even like sustainable urban development, right? Mm. So this will be a, a, a topic, right? That 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 will be covered, right? Not just in the past, they would have looked at old oh, aging population, mm. right? Or they might have looked at migrant workers, mm. right? But now there will also be a segment for geographers, geography teachers to talk about gender inequality as mm. well in the context of urban planning, right? Mm. So, um, so I think that that for me has been quite important, right? Because I was teaching it already at at uh, you know for the level four thousand module yes, in yes. geography, right? And yep. and some of my students who come into like the level two thousand and four thousand, they come from an A level geography background, and they say we didn't know that we could talk about this as part of geography, mm. and and I was thinking like, but well, why shouldn't they? Mm. Why shouldn't he be part of the discussion that mm. they're talking about cultural geography and social geography, and some of these topics around dance or gender, mm. right? That we're doing at the university level. Mm. If it is relevant and part of geography as a discipline, it should also be part of their geographical mm. education so that by the time they come to the university, they can do more yeah. with it. Mm. Yeah. And I think this kind of you going into dance, collaborating with Center for the Arts and then with MOE opening up topics is literally opening up different pathways mm -hmm. that... It comes back to your belief that it isn't just done one particular mm -hmm. way. There should be different pathways and different possibilities and and different avenues. But just kind of going back to the your engagement with the uh, Ministry of Education. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to hear that um, women and women in space, women uh, gender and geography, gender and geography yeah. is coming uh, is becoming a topic. So were you able to? have any kind of input into how, I mean, we're talking about the topic right mm -hmm. now, which is important. Mm -hmm. Have you had any um, input into how it can be taught? Yeah. So, so one of the things that um, I was asked to do more recently is, uh, so, you know, uh, was to do a sort of a short, uh, I guess they were, um, they're trying to put together resources mm. for the, the, the the academy that trains teachers, mm. right? Um, and so part of the collateral for training is is where they sort of like do a short video clip, right, right, of me talking about gender in the context of sustainable urban development, right? right? So there's there are like um uh you know there there will be a clip or video resource that teachers can look at, uh that they can look into. Um, and then later on, I think there are also um there's some discussion about whether or not there might be separate seminars or training oh, that might good. happen right down the line. But again, you know, it's not just me who will do it, right? So if of I course. think of my colleagues who teach in this topic at the at the geography department, some of them might be able to do this as well, right? So I'm not the only person who teaches gender and geography uh in in, in the geography department at NUS, right? So I I've benefited from great mentoring from my um colleagues. And so, you know, any number of us could possibly train uh US, uh, I mean, uh, MOE teachers on this topic. But for my part, I think my involvement has been directly in the syllabus development part. Mm. That means like looking at the content and mm. what we might include in it mm. for the syllabus, but also helping to do the recording for MOE so that there is a kind of a 
you know, a quick and easy kind of like video resource that the teachers can look at. Mm. And I think further down the line, there's been some discussion about maybe more one-on-one, like, you know, seminar style training right. uh, that could happen later okay. on. Yeah. This is the uh, NUS Educator Podcast Series, and we are in conversation with Dr. Kamalini Ramdas. In this segment, which I have called Future Challenges and Roadmaps, um, I want Dr. K to share with us what she sees as some major challenges facing her as an educator, and also what plans has she got uh, in the short to midterm? Sure, Robin. Thanks for the opportunity. I think one of the challenges f- for myself, but also I think for many of my colleagues, right, is, um, you know, the, the in a way, the, the, the need or the push to do more education-related research, mm. right? Um, so, you know, as you know, on the educator track, right, we, we can go from senior lecturer to associate professor and then to professor, right? And while research isn't necessarily a, a requirement, right, publications, uh, you know, uh, nevertheless, I think if we want to be impactful educators at some level and make impact beyond the classroom, right, policy impact or... or um, you know, just in terms of, of publication impact, then then we need to have some kind of basis on which we can make certain claims, mm. right? And as and as academics, right, the basis by which we make some of those claims would be in the way we do our research, research. right? And of course, research can be primary research where we actually have large sample size and then we're able to say something mm. about it. But we can also have more qualitative style research qualitative, yeah. or even research that looks at archival material mm. that's more textual. So there's a whole range of ways in which research can be done. Mm. and reviewed by a group of our peers to say whether it stands up you know uh, to so, sort of like um to the community of academics right so but i think this will be a challenge right why is it a challenge it is a challenge because many educators sometimes have quite heavy teaching loads mm. right and so by the time you know you you're done with teaching and classroom and marking mm. there's not a lot of time left to mm. do research right and at some level maybe as we as we go up from senior lecturer to AP, we may have more thoughts about our practice, mm. right? So I would say that I'm thinking more as an educator about my practice and what I want to say about education mm. at this stage in my life, right? Mm. And I need to find time to be able to do that, right? Um, and so making that time, balancing between classroom and and and, and writing or, or doing the research and collecting the data and analyzing it, that's something that I find quite challenging, mm. right? Uh, making that time to do that kind of work. And then after you've done that, right, to actually be able to publish Publish it it. or to apply for a grant is another step. Because sometimes a lot of the education research can be anecdotal. Yes. Meaning that the the classes might be small, especially for liberal arts education or arts and social sciences, Mm. where we may not have huge classrooms, right? Uh, So some of the disciplines might have bigger classes, but many of them are quite small, right? And so again, how do you you know, make use of the the kind of like data that we're getting from there and what can we do with it, right? So, so here I think like, you know, some of the sort of practice-based research um, approaches might be quite useful. Uh, that means thinking about 
you know, doing research in terms of practice, like, you know, using, uh, 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 maybe doing um, um, work on, say, uh, particular kinds of uh, practices like role play, right, yeah. for example, or deep listening, right? Yeah. How can we actually do like focus group discussions or small practice? assignments with students mm. and then sort of record it or videotape it and then do like discourse analysis of the recording, mm. right? Um, but that's a different kind of study from say large-scale behavioral science or social science methodology that's looking at samples of few hundreds, right? So I want to make a case for doing those kinds of smaller qualitative practice-oriented type research. Um, but I also think that sometimes it is harder to get buy-in, right? for that type of research, especially if you're looking to do that kind of research in relation to, say, NIE or MOE, right, where they do want to see certain kind of uh, representation, yeah. right? Or, or like, you know, can we actually make this claim, right? Mm. And that starting point then is a little bit different from, say, approaching uh, the, the debate from, say, post-structuralist perspective mm. or a more critical sort of uh, uh, qualitative kind of engagement, right? So I think um, for me, the challenge would be, number one, making space mm. for, making time, time and space for research uh, and number two, making time and space for the research that is maybe not so quantitative driven and, mm. and maybe more qualitative type research and how to make that stand up against the traditional way in which we see education research being conducted for the large part. right? So I think this will be a challenge. So, I mean, for our group, the, 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 the teaching and learning community on feminist pedagogy, right? One of the things that, that I've written up... Um, out of this TLC is that I've applied for an MOE ERFP grant mm. on role play um, for a geography education, right? Mm. And I've tied it directly to the new syllabus on gender and geography, yeah. right? And uh, and you're going to be one of my co-collaborators yes. on this project and, and so is Shoba, right? So in a way, this project is interesting because it adopts an interdisciplinary approach. Indeed. So it is discipline specific in the sense that it's about geographical Geophil, education. Yeah. But in terms of the practice and, and, and the pedagogy, it's yeah. anchored in feminist pedagogy, but also in terms of the type of uh, classroom practice, right? We're looking at role play really? and deep listening, right? So this is the premise by which this research proposal was drawn up. Mm. And we're still waiting to hear whether or not we'll get funding for it, right? Um, so again, we'll have to wait and see because, the, the again, the sample here will be a small, small sample. We're working with the groups of five students, hoping to find like maybe two groups of students in in in, uh, in each JC and having like two JCs collaborate with us to try out some of the role play and the scripting for how students can think about gender in relation to geography, right? So it's that kind of bottom-up collaborative co-curating of education mm. that is quintessentially feminist pedagogy. pedagogy meaning that the educators from NUS, the teachers in the geography classroom and the students, students will the come together to create something that they can then take and continue to work with. Mm. Right? So I'm, I have big dreams and hopes that this will happen. Um, but we shall have to watch this space and wait <laughs> and see. Right? That, I have to say, when... Um, you spoke to me about this and you told me about this vision. I was on board fairly quickly, but I, well, I have my own reasons because, you know, my my passion is in theatre. But So I, I, I want to end this segment by asking you, uh, why, why is this important to you right now, where you are? Why is this important? Why is doing this, going into the classroom, you know, 
doing the collaboration, mm-hmm. all that, all the that exciting mm-hmm. things that you discussed, just you shared with us just mm-hmm. now about getting the teachers, getting mm-hmm. the students. Why mm-hmm. is that important to you right now? I think it goes back to my my point about um, the flat classroom structure, right? Or education as something that has to be open and welcoming, and that makes space for mm. different life experiences, mm. right? Um, and and this is why I the more I read about feminist pedagogy, the more I feel like this is something I can I can understand. Mm. That's something that I can anchor my my teaching practice, um, you know, with right. What and and I think for me at this stage in my life, right, it's important, right. I don't know, maybe it's about turning fifty. Who knows, right? <laughs> you feel like you want to be, you want to, you want to be able to make an impact that's not just gonna be for geography professors i mean like you know not sorry geography as in a discipline for research so not just academic right mm. i want geography to go beyond just the teaching of a discipline yeah. right um it disciplinary knowledge it has to be about its application yeah. you know and 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 its application here is like okay learning geography shouldn't just be about certain methods that geographers are really good at doing right like whether it's you know um, you know, being able to analyze coastlines, mm. you know, use certain like really, um, you know, uh, 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 technical sort of equipment to measure slopes, you know, and 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 use like uh, computers to generate data, you know, GIS maps, you know, that's part of what we do, mm. right? But I think that once we start getting into conversations with theater practitioners, communication specialists, or people who are artists, right, uh, communities, right, then we start to see our discipline through their eyes, Mm. right? I think that kind of engagement has been important for me because I think education should never be just about disciplinary silos. Mm. It should be about extending conversations beyond that, right? And sometimes it needs to be with non-academics, not just academics, Mm. right? Uh, And so I think for me, right, at this stage in my life, this is important, right? The ability to take my discipline elsewhere, Mm. I think that's important. And I'm not the only one who does it, right? Yeah. I think lots of people do this, right? Mm. It's just that I have found it meaningful for me mm. and it's it's a way in which I've been able to kind of think about the kind of educator I want to be, mm. right? Um, and, and I'm not the first yeah. or last person who will do yes. education in this way. I'm sure loads of other people who are listening in on this podcast, right? Hopefully, they'll find it useful. If anything, we'll find a community of people who want to do the same things, Thing. which is what we learned with our TLC, TLC. right? And, and the interest that it sort of generated yes. and how sometimes academia is quite a lonely profession because we work in our rooms mm. and we sometimes don't really get out and talk to other people, mm. right? We could be in the same faculty in a different department and we're doing the same, like similar kind of practice, but to be able to share with each other and learn from each other, I think that's something that's important. This engagement is quite important to me. And so I think at this stage, right, doing the ERFP will be a great way to connect to schools. Doing the TLC was a great way to connect yeah, with my colleagues and to meet other people who yeah. are interested in similar things. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about the future. Thank you very much. It was lovely having this conversation with you. Thank you.